For those who remain, I would invite you to join me in Luke chapter 16. And uh, uh, maybe we'll, we'll say for those who are able, I would invite you to stand for just a minute and stretch your legs. If you are sitting or in a car, I don't, don't expect you to stand in your car. Or if you don't want to stand, you don't have to. No one's forced. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 16, beginning in the 19th verse. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor person, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sore, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in the flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He then said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I usually preach from this passage about money. I was looking back and the last time I preached in this the lectionary cycle, this came up and I, and I preached about money. I followed a John Wesley sermon actually. Uh, it's called The Danger of Riches, what John Wesley wrote. And, and one of these days, I want to work up the courage to actually just go through John Wesley's whole sermon, except it's eight pages, single space, at like nine-point font. And I don't know if I have the endurance to go through that, nor do I know if you have the endurance to sit through that. It is absolutely true, though. Riches are a, a dangerous thing. They are an affliction, like a, a bad back or a club foot. It just happens that the particular affliction of riches is one that we would all love to have. Now, nobody wants a little bit of cancer, but riches, well, I remember an evangelist when I was younger came and, and preached about hell from this passage. And, and he went into all sorts of details about sunburns and burns and skin grafts and he, he talked about nerve damage and and kind of really on and on about pain and, and all that and kind of came to the end and you know he didn't say this but it, it felt like you know if you if you want to avoid this come down and confess your sins 
He, he wasn't that crass, but it was definitely in that zip code. This morning, though, apart from the dangers of riches and, and the fear of, of hell and torment, I, I want to take kind of a, a different approach. I want to go what I think is a little bit deeper, what I think is maybe a little more troubling than either of those. Let's start with the problems, and, and there, are, there are quite a few. There are reasons to be suspicious of the things that Jesus says here in his presentation of heaven and hell. The first is that is that language of Abraham's bosom. Uh, my Bible actually cuts that out. Your Bible may have that older Bibles. That's that's what the passage is there. This is not an afterlife like we understand it. In fact, it's very different from some of the other descriptions of heaven that are found elsewhere in Scripture. There is no streets of gold in what Jesus describes. There are no pearl gates. There are no crystal fountains. This place that Jesus starts to talk about seems to to center around the person of Abraham. I I don't want to be rude here. I think think meeting Abraham will be really cool. I think hanging out with him in the afterlife will be great. I mean, no one in the history has influenced the human race more than than Abraham. But but when I get to the other side, I really want to see Jesus, not Abraham. And so we, we may be a little suspicious of this description of heaven, that it doesn't quite fit into to how we understand it other places. And it probably is, is a, a, also to be a little hesitant of the other side, this description of, of Hades, the, the cries for relief. Jesus often speaks of, of judgment. And that's what this passage is. It's a, it is a judgment story spoken to his audience. But his images and the metaphors he uses when he talks of judgment changes based on the audience that he is talking to. This image of the, of the chasm between paradise and torment, it arose during the intertestamental period, that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This was also the same time that the idea of a soul began to take shape. In the Old Testament, everyone, good or bad, you all died and you all went down to this place of shadows, what the the Old Testament referred to as Sheol, the pit. And that's where everyone went, no matter what you did. And so the things you did on earth lasted in your children, which is why it's so important in the Old Testament to have children, and why in the Old Testament, when you were barren, it was such a curse. But in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, something new began to take shape. And and as it was getting formed in theology, the people, it it took some odd shapes and some odd directions. There's a show on Netflix right now. Uh, uh, That doesn't make sense. Netflix, there's always shows. There's there's a glass-blowing show on Netflix. And I never thought this would be something you, people would watch, but it's very, it got very popular. The, the, you watch these, these craftspersons, they, they take the molten glass and they, they spin it and they clip it and they blow it and it, it changes and it morphs. And you're not quite sure what it's going to look like in the end until finally it cools and, and there's a dragon or a vase or, or something. That, that's kind of how theology goes. It, it changes and morphs, it grows as through the years. What we can be certain of, even if the specifics aren't how we imagine heaven and hell, uh, is that Jesus is coming to us to tell us that 
that same thing that was alive in the Old Testament, that our actions on earth matter. The Bible is very clear. How we live here, the decisions we make, the choices we do, they form and shape our lives, and they have eternal consequences. And so Jesus tells us that there was once a man who was rich. He dressed in, in purple and fine linen. To dress in purple in the Roman Empire was, was to make you someone very important. It was a sign of privilege and prestige. In fact, there were certain laws in certain places about who could wear purple and how much you could wear. The, the dye itself was incredibly expensive, and, and it was a process of, of labor that was very intensive. So in, Paul will go out of his way to mention that Lydia in Acts was a dyer of purple cloth seller of the dye. So this man had the finest clothes you could find. No hand-me-downs were in his closet. He didn't go thrift store shopping. And we are told that he feasted sumptuously every day. This guy was not on a diet. He was going to wedding feasts every single day. He was eating the, the nicest meals. And we find out that, that he has a home with a gate. You know, he doesn't live where where, where we live. He lives behind the gate and in those type places. He is, he is wealthy enough to want to protect and keep a distance from the riffraff. And then Jesus introduces us to another person. And this other person gets a name in the passage, which is, which is fascinating. For all of the rich man's wealth and status, for all of the symbols, for all of his fine parties, he is nameless. But... Here is Lazarus, lying at the rich man's gate. And we learn this man's name. We learn that he has an identity. The, the Greek here alludes that the man would have been crippled. He, he wasn't just lazy or relaxing. He was, he was sick and suffering. He was covered in head to toe with sores. He was hungry and starving. He, he longed to fill his belly with what fell from the rich man's table. In this time period, feasts, yes, would, would, they would use bread almost like a, a napkin. And they would just throw it and discard it onto the ground. And instead of Lazarus getting any of that, those morsels that fell, most likely the dogs ate it up, and then they would come and, and lick his sores. I know we love dogs, but this sounds like a, a little bit outside the bounds. Dogs at this time, though, were seen as unclean. They were a dirty animal, and it only furthers his horrible position in life. It is no wonder, then, that Lazarus dies probably unnoticed to all save the angels who carry him up to Abraham's bosom. In the same verse 22, we are told that the rich man dies as well. Yet he did not receive the angels carrying him up. He, he is just buried in the ground. Maybe he ate a little too much. And he awakens in Hades, not in the good place. And he is tormented. And he looks up and he sees Lazarus next to Abraham being comforted. Now this would have been a serious surprise for the audience Jesus is talking to. They were a simple folk back then. They looked on people who were living a good life and having lots of toys and they assumed that they were happy and blessed. 
They assumed that if you were wealthy, you were living right, that God favored you. They thought that if you were poor, not only poor but crippled, not only crippled but starving with sores all over you, that you were not favored by God, that you were looked down upon. It was clear that some sin in your life was getting manifest, some sin in your parents' life was being visited upon you. I, I know we would never do that, right? We would never assume that someone who had a bad life or a good life was, was blessed and cursed by God. We would never assume that someone, just because they were rich, they knew what they were doing. We would never look down on the poor as if they somehow deserved it. And so the rich man awakens in torment, and he looks up and he calls out to Abraham. He calls out to his father, and he begs for relief. Send Lazarus. I don't think it's reading too much into the story to notice that here on the other side of death, the rich man knew Lazarus' name. That he knew this man that lied by his gate and begged. It wasn't that he didn't notice him in his suffering every day as he would leave his mansion to go about his business. It was that he didn't care. This was conscientious disregard. Here was a man in all of his wealth and all of his luxury focused only on his own comfort, his own concerns. And now, on the other side of life, in the great veil of death, surrounded by the fires of Hades, he is still the same, seeking his own comfort, his own relief, and it's only when his request is denied, this, this appeal for a bit of water to cool his tongue, it is only in that moment that he starts to care for others, but his care only extends to those who are closest to him. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. And Abraham says these words. If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced by someone rising from the dead. Beloved, that verse haunts me, seeing as how I am someone whose life and faith is founded on someone else rising from the dead. Someone else who came back to life to tell me the way of salvation. Because it, it forces me to ask, here on the other side of resurrection, when Jesus has shown us the way, the truth, and the life, who have I missed? How are my eyes only seeing myself? What is that person in my life that has gone unnoticed and unregarded, but who is named by God? I think that's what the evangelist in my youth missed. If Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card, a way of avoiding eternal punishment, a way of making sure that my level of comfort is uh, uh, established for all of time, if we are only concerned about the status of souls, then I worry we have gravely missed the meaning and the message of resurrection. I find it frustrating 
Maybe the, the final problem with this whole story that Jesus tells is that he gives no explanation. He doesn't sit down with the disciples and, and go through it and tell us what it's supposed to mean. He just speaks it and there it's out. It seems that we then must find our own meaning, see ourselves, be invited to find our own story in this story. And maybe this morning you are there with the rich man who has spent far too much time and money on your own comfort. If so, I, I hope you hear a word of warning. Maybe this morning you, you much more identify with Lazarus, unnoticed and uncared for, suffering in silence, if so, be encouraged. Most of us, though, I wonder if we shouldn't then find ourselves in another place. That most uncomfortable place of those brothers. You see, most of us have more than we need, both physically and spiritually. We've been to Bible studies and sat through a sermon or two. We've we're not struggling to make ends meet at the end of the month. And then we don't hear the cry of the needy next door. And if we don't, if we don't, if, we, if we've only not only missed the law and the prophets, but we have failed to listen to the man who came back from the dead, then we are those brothers. If, Jesus says. Their status isn't set. If you would just send Lazarus back, the rich man asks, because they are in that difficult place of contingency. The rich man is out. Poor Lazarus is in. The fate and destiny of those brothers is still undecided. And it seems as though that contingent Fate rests upon who gets a name in their life. Who do they notice? Who do they care for? As Christians, we are called in our faith and following after our Savior to care for others. As Nazarenes, that care for others is given the specific tone of caring for the lost, for the least of these, for the outsiders, for the marginalized, for the poor and overlooked. But our call to evangelism and compassion and living out our discipleship isn't a call that's predicated on a fear of hell and torment. It is in response to the gracious invitation that we have received from the law and the prophets. It is because our lives have been transformed in the resurrection of Jesus that we have the good news, the abundant life, and the call to share. Let us be those who name the outsider, who care and who love, who follow the call of our risen Lord. Let us pray. And now, Lord Christ, may we, with boldness and compassion, with grace and mercy, with humility, 
reach out, find those who are hurting, name them in your love, that we might see the abundance of your kingdom grow, and that we might be a part of your redemption. In the name of Christ we pray. Let us worship the Lord.